The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Power of music. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, Music will help dissolve your perplexities and purify your character and sensibilities. And in time of care and sorrow, will keep a fountain of joy alive in you. Martin Luther the great theologian said, if you want to comfort the sad, if you want to terrify the happy, if you want to encourage the despairing, if you want to humble the proud, if you want to pacify the aggressive, there is no more effective means than music. Music is powerful because God made it powerful. And so he comes to us and he tells us and he commands our souls to sing. And what we'll see today is Israel singing. Last week we read the story of Israel's salvation and we could identify their salvation with our salvation. This week we will read of Israel's singing of salvation. And through their singing of salvation, we will understand our own purpose and our own delight in God's command that we would sing as well. If you would please open up to Exodus chapter 15. Uh, We'll be reading verses 1 through 21. Last week we were in Exodus 14. Israel was surrounded by death, the Red Sea on one side, the Egyptian army on the other side. And in the midst of their complete helplessness, the Lord protected the people with a column of fire and a column of cloud. And the Lord made a way of salvation by parting the Red Sea. And then the Lord completes his salvation by closing the waters over the Egyptian army, crushing them. Israel's appropriate response to this great salvation, first off, was fearing the Lord, for he is awesome in power. But then also putting their faith in him, believing the Lord as the author and architect and accomplisher of their salvation. This week, they will continue their response of joyful, God-fearing, overflowing, joyous, victorious celebration in singing. And so let's read together Exodus chapter 15, verse 1 through 21. Exodus 15, verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he has cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. 
My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The people have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Felicia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh, with his chariots and his horsemen, went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Let's pray. Lord, as we consider this topic of singing, May you reveal in our hearts ways that we have sung that have not been faithful, maybe that have been sinful or selfish. And God, pray that you would unite our singing, that it would be pleasing in your ears, and that it would be the overflow of the joy of our heart. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I talk to people in the church, I think there are two major errors when it comes to music and to worship. The first is minimizing it. To say, you know, that's not really for me. That's not who I am. I'm not a singer. I'm not very good. And the second is that we exalt it above God himself. Indeed, there is this great temptation to worship worship, isn't there? With the excellence of music today, there's a temptation to seek this spiritual or this emotional experience instead of seeking God himself. And with all the temptation that surrounds how we would use singing and how we would use music, it is so extremely important that we have a well-developed theology of singing. And that we understand the answer to this fundamental question. Why do we sing? Why has God commanded us to sing? Why do we sing? Especially when we don't feel like singing. And what we're going to see here is that verse 2 kind of lays out 
the emphasis of why we sing. Verse 2 again says, The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. These are the three things I want to focus on this morning as we ask the question, why do we sing? We sing because the Lord is my strength. We sing because the Lord is my song. And we sing because the Lord is my salvation. And so let's look at those three things. First, the Lord is my strength. I don't you know if you have noticed, but this passage is full of a lot of carnage. Verse 3, the Lord is a man of war. Verse 4, Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea. Verse 7, in the greatness of your majesty, your overthrow, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. Even the ladies' choir gets into it later. Verse 20, Miriam the prophetess took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, as the deer panteth for the water. Right? No. What does she sing? Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. You know, it might seem very strange that they would be singing and dancing and worshiping and delighting at the death of thousands of men. But what we have to understand is that this song is a victorious celebration. It's a song of victory. When the kings of ancient times would go out to defend their people and fight their enemy, and when they would conquer their enemy, they would come back to singing and dancing and delighting. Maybe you remember this in the life of David. In 1 Samuel 18, it says that when David returned from striking down the Philistines, the woman came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy. Sounds so similar to Miriam, doesn't it? And with musical instruments. And the woman sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his tens of thousands. You know, even in our own culture, we will celebrate a victory even at the death of other people. I still remember the imagery of the White House outside the White House the night that Osama bin Laden was killed. And the people celebrating in the streets because from their perception, evil was being put to death. Moses was not simply describing random acts of violence, but righteous acts of divine judgment that God would execute because of his great love for his people. Israel worshiped the Lord as a man of war because the ferocity of God is good news to powerless people. The just and righteous fury of an all-powerful and righteous God against evil is such good news for us because it means that evil will not win the day. It means that that good will triumph, that God who is righteous and perfect will not be defeated and his people and his plan will not be destroyed. And that's why this is part of their song of salvation. Israel is rejoicing Because they know the salvation of the Lord. They know that the Lord is their strength. 
for their salvation, not only previously at the Red Sea, but also looking forward as you look at verses 15 through the end, we see uh, the Moses communicates how Edom will be in dismay, how the leaders of Moab will tremble, how the inhabitants of Canaan will mount away. They are sure that their God who has won in the past will win in the future because the Lord is their strength. They are certain that God is not indifferent towards them, but that God fights for them, protecting them, defending them, and saving them. They sing because the Lord, and not themselves, is their strength. You know, as Israel had enemies in their day, the church today has enemies as well. There are three enemies I just want to point out. The first is this, public enemy number one, death. 1 Corinthians 15, 25, we read, For Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Can you destroy death? Nope. Can I destroy death? Nope. We are powerless against death. And so we praise a God who can destroy death by his fury, who can destroy death by his love. And we know he can do it because he destroyed death in Exodus 14, and we know he can do it because he destroyed death in the resurrection. And so we sing praises to this warrior God because he can destroy death on our behalf. Public enemy number two is our flesh. Galatians 5.16 says, But I say, Walk by the Spirit, the Spirit, not by yourself, not by your own efforts. Walk by the Spirit, that is, walk by God and by His power. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. What is being acknowledged here is that we know, we crave to do what is right and what is good, but we do not have the power to do it. And so we must walk by the Spirit of God, the power of God. The Lord must be our strength as we battle against the temptations of flesh. And finally, the public enemy number three is Satan. Ephesians 6.10 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord. Not in yourself. Be strong in the Lord. And in the strength of his might, not your own might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, meaning other people, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Satan is smarter than you. Satan is stronger than you. You are no match for Satan. But the good news is that we have someone who stands in our place. We have someone else who is our strength, someone else who fights for us. You see, I think one of the reasons why we don't seem to understand that God as this ferocious warrior is such good news and such worthy of praise is because we don't know how helpless we are. We are absolutely helpless against death, absolutely helpless against the flesh, and absolutely helpless against Satan. And it is people like that, people like us, that need a God that will come and fight on our behalf. And so we celebrate him. 
as the warrior God, the God who is our strength. So that's one reason we sing. We sing because we are not strong enough to face our enemies on our own, but that God faces them for us and that he is our strength. The second reason we sing is because the Lord is my song. Now, this is an interesting phrase. What does it mean that the Lord is my song? Well, as you look at the structure of this song, there are three things I want to point out that I think help us understand what it means that the Lord is my song, okay? The first is this, that the Lord is our song because worship is personal, all right? Look at verse one with me. It says, I will sing to the Lord. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. We don't just come here on Sundays to worship the Lord God. We come here to worship my Lord God. It is a very personal expression. And I know it, it sounds weird to think that we sing to God because he is our song. But when, when Moses is saying that the Lord is my song, he's not literally saying that God is words on a piece of paper set to music. He's communicating something far deeper. He's communicating that the Lord is his delight, that the Lord is his joy that the Lord is his overflow of expressions. That's what it means by the Lord is my song. If someone came to you and said, you are my song, it would mean they cherish you and they delight in you and they rejoice in you. The Lord is the chief joy and highest delight in Israel's life. He is the one that puts a smile on their face and he is the one that puts a song in their heart because the Lord is not just a God, but the Lord is my God. We also see that the Lord is our song, not just because it is, he's so personal, but because our worship is corporate. In other words, we worship with other people. Verse 1 again says, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. Verse 20, Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. You know, it is true that you can worship God in isolation. You can worship God cranking the radio, driving down the road, and that is a glorious gift. But if you do not gather together with God's people to worship God, there is a hole in your worship. There is something that is missing in your worship. Because when we gather together as a people of God, as God has commanded us to worship him, it actually increases our enjoyment of him. I've heard it said that barbershop quartets when they sing together, when they sing in perfect harmony, sometimes they will speak of a fifth voice, a voice that none of them could produce on their own, but put together comes out. The whole is greater than the sum of the parts. As we gather together as a people of God to sing his worship, to sing his praise, it reminds us that we were saved not just onto God, but onto a community, onto a people, onto the church, his bride. And so we gather together corporately to sing his praise, both for our good and for God's glory. And so we sing to God. God is our song because this worship is so personal. But it's also corporate in that we sing together. And finally, we see, and I think this is the most emphatic part in understanding what it means that God is our song. That worship is God-centered. That it is theocentric. Let's contrast that with the words of Pharaoh. Look in verse 9. The enemy said, 
I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. The hope of Pharaoh and the end of Pharaoh and the the power of Pharaoh was all tied to his own strengths and his own desires and his own abilities. But then you see Israel's response in the very next verse, verse 10. You, talking to the Lord, not Moses, not to each other, but you, O Lord, blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. You know, Moses was a great man. He wasn't perfect, not even close to perfect. But he was a hero in the faith, so much so that at the end of Deuteronomy, it says that there has not arisen a prophet, a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Moses was a man of tremendous faith. But they did not sing a Moses. Nowhere in this song do they sing a Moses. Because Moses isn't worthy of being their song. Moses isn't worthy of being our song. Moses would fail us if he was our song. The only one that can be our song is the Lord who is our Savior. Our worship must be God-centered, God-saturated. Even in verse 1, we read Moses and the people of Israel saying this song to the Lord. We sing about God and for God and to God. Now, this might seem like common sense, but this is very important in today's church culture. If you would ask a pastor, what is the purpose of Sunday morning worship? You will get a variety of answers. Everything from introducing people to God to teaching and encouraging the people of God. The problem with those is those are both centered on man. The purpose we come here on Sunday mornings, the major purpose is not for us but it is to give God the worship that he is due. And the cool thing is that as we focus on God and we give God the worship that he is due, people are introduced to God and his saints are nourished. You see, those are fruits of our worship, not the goal of our worship. Our goal in worship is give worship to God who is due our worship. And the fruit of it is that we are encouraged and we are drawn close to God and to one another. Now, we may point fingers at other churches that may sound like we're doing that, but certainly we are guilty of the same, of making worship about us and not about God. When our gauge of Sunday morning worship is based on song choice, how familiar we are with it, or the volume that it's played played at, what we've done is we've taken worship which is supposed to be about God, and we've made it about us. Now, certainly, we have preferences, and there is nothing wrong with that. But a true sign of true worship is when the Lord is your song, even when you don't like the song you're singing. A sign of true worship is when the Lord is your song, even when the songs you're singing are not your preference or are not at the volume that you like, but that the Lord is your song because he is your joy and because he is your salvation. And so why do we sing? 
because the Lord is our song. He is our joy and our delight. He is the purpose of our worship, the content of our worship, and we celebrate who he is, what he has done, and the salvation he has accomplished on our behalf. It is because of these reasons that worship is uniquely Christian. I emailed three of our missionaries this week that we support, and this is what I wrote. I said, I have long thought to myself, Christians are the only ones, compared to other religions, Christians are the only ones that emphasize singing because we have the only God worth celebrating. I'm curious, in your culture, are there Hindu music stations or Muslim worship music stations or Buddhist worship music stations? What part does music have in their religion? Is it celebratory or just more chanting to, quote, get in the zone? and gain the approval of their God. The response was fascinating. It was different than what I thought they would say, but it was even better. The missionary that's in the Middle East said this. He said, when newcomers join us for fellowship on Sundays, they're often most surprised by our songs. I remember one student recently who talked about how we sang from our hearts to God and that it was very powerful. He said he had never experienced something like it before. Our missionaries in Taiwan said, whenever a non-Christian Taiwanese friend has attended church with me, they have always commented on the singing. One friend started crying while we were singing. She said she was so moved to hear everyone singing together and with such joy. Another Taiwanese friend said she likes attending church just for the singing. She's not a Christian yet, but goes every week. Anyways, this makes me think that there really is something unique about Christian singing. We sing out of joyful gratitude, not in an effort to attain something. Finally, my good friend Stephen, who's ministered to Muslims around the world and his wife as well, says this. As far as I know, there is no singing tradition in the mosque. My wife has told me that when Muslims came to faith in Christ in Jordan, the singing was one of the sweetest things for them to experience. In the Middle Eastern church, they sing the Lord's Prayer after every service. And for many of the Muslims, it was the first time they had ever been a part of corporate singing. And then he ends with this. He says, I agree with you. A God that only requires your obedience is not one that evokes singing. Only our lover God would be worthy of that. I think what we do here on Sunday mornings is uniquely Christian because we do not sing in order to earn our salvation. We sing in response to our salvation. We sing in response to how good God is. We don't just worship God in song. We worship God because he is our song. He is our joy. He is our delight. He is our strength. And he is our savior. And so why do we sing? We sing because the Lord is our strength. We sing because the Lord is our song. And finally, we sing because the Lord is our salvation. I want to zero in on verse 13 and walk through it very slowly. It starts like this. You have led us in your steadfast love. Also, it could be translated faithful love or unfailing love. The love of God is the foundation of our salvation. God does not save us because we are hard workers. 
God does not save us because we are put together. God doesn't save us because we are moral. God doesn't save us because we are religious. God saves us because he loves us. God saved you because he loves you. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. This is such good news. Because if we did not earn his love, we also cannot unearn his love. His love is unearned, unconditional, and unfailing towards his people. You know, it's, we said just a little bit ago that the Lord is our song, and it means that he is our delight. But what is amazing in the book of Zephaniah, we learn not only is the Lord our song, but that we are actually his song. In Zephaniah, it says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. He is speaking this to his people. He delights over his people. He sings over his people because he loves his people. The good news is that the foundation of our salvation is not our love for God, but God's love for us. And so that is the foundation of our salvation. He moves on to show us the cost of our salvation, which is redemption. Verse 13, he says, You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. Later on, it talks about he has purchased us. To redeem means that very thing, to reacquire, to get something back for yourself, to buy back something. Israel had become the property of Pharaoh. And then in Exodus 6, 6, the Lord comes and says, I will redeem you. I will purchase you back. I will bring you back to myself with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. And this is exactly what God has done. By his unfailing love, God has remained loyal to his promise and has redeemed his people back to himself. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, this is the cost of our redemption. This is the cost of our salvation. Not the blood of boats, goats, and bulls, but the cost of God's own son, Jesus Christ. He has redeemed you, purchasing you out of slavery to be his, only, his own son through his only son, Jesus Christ. In the fullest sense, Jesus did not just secure our salvation. Jesus is our salvation. And so the foundation for our salvation is the unfailing love of God. The cost of our salvation is God's own son, Jesus Christ, who redeemed us. And finally, we see here in verse 13, the goal of our salvation. Verse 13 again, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. God saved Israel from Egypt not just so they could be free of slavery, but he saved them for the purpose of coming to the land of Canaan, of dwelling with God, of being with God, of worshiping God, of enjoying God. You were saved with a purpose, saved to glorify God and to enjoy God. And so we see this is the goal of our salvation. Again, it's communicating John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. That's the foundation that he gave his only son, the cost of salvation, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That is being with God forever, enjoying him, delighting in him. 
And so we sing because the Lord is our strength, because the Lord is our song, and because the Lord Jesus Christ is our salvation. And such a great salvation deserves a celebration of song. Let me end with this. You know, we often talk about the Bible as the story of God's redemption. We talked about that earlier. That the Bible is the story of God's redemption. But maybe the Bible's a musical. I mean, there's a songbook in it. And there's singing throughout. There's celebratory singing of God's salvation. You know, when, when Moses was commanded to go to Pharaoh, Moses wasn't commanded just to go and say, let my people go, right? That wasn't just what he was supposed to say. What Moses went and said to Pharaoh was very specific. And it comes up time and time and time again. Moses says to Pharaoh, on behalf of the Lord, let my people go so they can worship me. The purpose of your salvation is that you would sing to God, that you would worship God, that you would enjoy God, and that you would glorify God. I want to end with a quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise does not merely express but completes the enjoyment. Let me read it again. We delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise does not merely express but completes our enjoyment. Imagine if someone came along and they said, you know, I'm going to give you free tickets to your favorite band or to your favorite sports team, and it's, it's this huge event, right? And so you're like, yeah, I would like those tickets. I'll take those tickets. And they said, well, there's only one, one little stipulation for this. Okay, what is it? Well, we're going to duct tape you to the seat, and we're going to duct tape your mouth, Matter of fact, your whole body's going to be covered in duct tape except for your eyes. And so you'll be able to see it, which will be great, but you can't move, you can't talk, you can't speak. And so there you are at your favorite concert or your favorite sporting events, and there's a magnificent song and there is a magnificent play, and you cannot express the delight of your heart. And it's torture. It would be torture, right? Because the praise does not merely express, but it completes our enjoyment of the thing that we are praising. And so, why do we sing? We sing because the Lord is our strength. He goes before us. He fights on our behalf in battles that we cannot win our own. We sing because the Lord is our song. He is the delight of our souls. We sing because the Lord is our salvation, redeeming us back to himself through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, because of his unfailing love. Let's pray. Lord, I, I think of the song, The Heart of Worship, and we sing... I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it. It's all about you. It's all about you. Lord, we come confessing that we are 
We are so often distracted. Um, we are so often focused on ourselves. And so, God, we know this is a battle we cannot win on our own. And so we pray that by your love, through your Holy Spirit, you would change our hearts to focus our praise upon you. Help us in that, Lord. God, as we turn to your table and we, and we hold the bread and the wine, God, set it apart for us. May it not just be ordinary to us, God, but may it be extraordinary, a visible, tangible proclamation of your great love for us. May we take it and be nourished to sing with a singular focus with an audience of one. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.